0: Hello, and welcome to the third edition of Lockdown Culture, the podcast compared by me, Ed Vasey, who is none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse
1: magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine.
0: We're very excited today because we've got Lockdown Culture's very first guests, and we're going to be talking to them about poetry and opera, but we're not going to tell you who they are, so you've got to listen to the whole podcast. Before you do that, we'd like to kick off by telling you what the Donmar Warehouse is doing this week. It's launching its very first online production of Adam Brace's play Midnight Your Time and it stars Diana Quick who of course I first got to know virtually as it were when she was one of the stars of that epic series Brideshead Revisited that Granada did back in 1981. I used to watch it with my dad. He absolutely adored it. It's bizarrely a sort of seared childhood memory of watching that ravishing production and Diana Quick was the star. But bring us up to date, Midnight Your Time is about a retired lawyer who tries to call her daughter in Palestine every Thursday and she's stuck at home with nothing to do, a bit like us. It's directed by the Don Mar's own artistic director, Michael Longhurst, who first directed Diana in this play in 2011. The play was written especially for her. And as soon as lockdown began, Clever Michael Longhurst wanted to revive it, as he says it's so full of commentary that really resonates, not just with ageing, of course, but with isolation.
1: Yes, we can all relate to isolation, and I'm afraid I can relate to the ageing bit as well. Um, But it's such a brilliant idea to, to revive this play. And we did try to interview Diana Quigg, and she was so lovely and happy to come on the podcast. But unfortunately, we've all been having terrible problems with our internet Um, So apologies if it's all a bit clunky today. But um, Diana did manage to send this lovely message via her phone
2: instead. Hi, this is Diana. I play Judy in Midnight Your Time, a half-hour play which the Donmar will be streaming from next Wednesday on their YouTube channel. It's a play we first did for Hightide and then Edinburgh Festival about nine years ago and... Adam Brace and Mike the director and I always planned to revive it at some point and I'm delighted that Mike had the inspiration that it was a play that's very suitable for lockdown because it's about a woman who is trying desperately to Skype her daughter in Palestine at a time when Skype was a brand new technology and she was very inexperienced in using it. She starts on New Year's Eve and every week at the appointed time she calls her daughter and never gets any joy from her um, and becomes more and more desperate, angry, self-justifying, wry and sometimes funny. We've had a lot of fun making it remotely, um, sending it down through Zoom conferences and QuickTime Player and I very much hope you're going to enjoy listening to it too. Bye.
0: Brilliant. That was wonderful, Diana. Quick, avoiding the scrutiny questions from the culture of Country and Townhouse. But thank you for that lovely message. Midnight Your Time is going to stream live at 7.30 from uh, Wednesday uh, for a week on YouTube. So just uh, dial in Don Donmar Warehouse on your YouTube website and you will find it.
1: So now, Ed, who's the biggest music lover of the two of us, um, has discovered a fabulous new venture that um, the English National Opera is doing. Ed? Uh,
0: Yes, well, you're the literary one, Charlotte, and I'm the musical (laughs) one. (laughs) I wouldn't say I'm that musical, but I am a big fan of the English National Opera, which has had um, its ups and downs in the last few years. In fact, the Arts Council uh, cut its grant, but it's now got a new team at the helm. It's got a wonderful chairman called Harry Brunges who is a medical doctor who plays the piano and it's got a wonderful chief executive called Stuart Murphy who I got to know when he was the head of Sky Entertainment and I'm delighted to say that Stuart is joining us on this podcast. Stuart, hello.
3: Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm in my son's room and it's really nice to um, chat to you guys. Yeah.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I'm in my daughter's room so there's a sort of synergy going on there. I mean, Stuart, you and I got to know each other when you were head of Sky Entertainment. What's it like making the crossover between the world of glamorous telly and the world of even more glamorous opera? <laughs>
3: um, blimey, what's it like? Well, I'm 48, so you kind of, I think you get out of the habit of learning new things professionally. Um, And in some ways, I think the higher up you go, the more your world, in some ways, gets narrower. So I'd I'd slightly fallen out of love with TV and wanted somewhere new. I love opera anyway. Um, There were more similarities than people expect there to be. So it's fundamentally about making the average person's evening 9 out of 10 instead of 6 out of 10, same as TV. Um it's trying to stage the impossible and if people suggest the mediocre it's trying to push them beyond where they're comfortable so that's kind of similar um also it's um an art not a science so yeah it's it's actually really similar i I love opera and i love the company
0: there is loads i want to talk to you about and we're going to talk about your driving very shortly but i just want to cover a couple of other things first of all because i'm the chairman of something called Digital Theatre, which puts uh, plays online. It's mainly aimed at universities, colleges and schools. But I'd love to know, particularly, obviously, in this time when everyone is having to do everything online, in fact, it's the whole premise behind this podcast, what do you think it's like to watch an opera on your laptop or your good, iPad? Good
1: question. Good question.
3: <laughs> you should be an interviewer. Um, <laughs> it's a million-dollar question. I mean, you know, the... Um, I saw, t- ages ago, there was a radio show called Blue Jam that was really funny. It was on Radio 1, Chris Morris. And when I ran BBC Three, I wanted to just run the radio show on the TV. Um, uh, and in filming opera and seeing opera over digital is a similar mix of media, I think. So it's filming something that's basically made for stage. And as a result, I think it loses lots. So the makeup, for instance, um, on stage is slapped on so that people can see it from 200 metres away at the back of the balcony, whereas on TV, in HD or ultra HD, it needs to be so delicately, de- delicately done. And so it's, for me, it's one of the reasons why opera can feel slightly grotesque or panto when it's filmed for for TV. I think the other thing as well is if you're a real music expert sitting in an auditorium and feeling the vibrations in your body of a massive orchestra and an incredible tenor is something else. All that said, having opera over the airwaves to people while they're holed up at the moment can only be a good thing.
0: To be blunt with you, and I think it's best to be blunt on these podcasts, I've always found the world of classical music to be quite insular, quite self-referential, and particularly when you're hanging around opera buffs who know, it's like hanging around a football fanatic, they know absolutely every singer... Uh, and so on. It, it feels very
3: exclusive and hard to break in unless you're an absolute fanatic. But you know, I, I totally recognise what you're saying, Ed. Um, that you know, lots of people think you you need a certain knowledge base to enjoy opera, and it doesn't help the critics. And there are kind of ten really vocal critics. Yeah. Eight of whom are male, all of whom <laughs> are white, all of whom are a certain age. Um, they um, write about it in, a, in quite a technical way, in my view. ENO has been founded on the belief that opera should be for everyone, so we sing in English, unlike um, most of the opera that's in German or Italian or French or whatever. Um, and it was founded by crazy Lillian Bayliss, who also founded Sadler's Wells and the Young Vic, uh, the Old Vic, rather, um, to... Um, to uh, have low ticket prices and to have a really different atmosphere. Um, since I've been there, I've been there two and a half years. We now do completely free tickets for anyone under 18, come as many times as you want, sit in the balcony, the best uh, sound area of the theatre. Um, we take opera out to schools, 15,000 people a year get opera in their school because of us. Um, we brought ticket prices down to a tenner, a whole, a whole bunch of things, and as a result, our, our average age has gone from sixty nine to fifty seven in two years, which is amazing. Stuart, wow, can I just brilliant.
1: can I just ask you because um you know being a mother of teenagers as well, are you are you serious? You can just turn up and go in
3: the balcony as a teenager for for nothing? Yeah, we don't let you turn up. What we do <laughs> is uh, you uh, we don't let you just turn up. You, you've got to go online <laughs> and register, and so um yeah, go online and register. A uh, uh, an adult can take up to four kids under 16. But if the kids are 16 or 17, they can just come for free. A teacher can take up to 10 kids. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's been amazing. You know, it's been transformational, actually. There's a, there's a tradition in opera that people o- only go on stage before a performance to announce a problem, like if a singer's ill. What we do on Fridays, Saturdays and opening nights when we do these free tickets for under-18s is someone always goes on stage just to say, welcome. And say, enjoy it on your terms. You've just as much right to be here as anyone else. You could be on this stage that Charlie Chaplin was on. You know, you can be here. And if you like an ARIA, shout bravo. (laughs) And I always always race up to the balcony, um, if I'm the one doing the speech, I always race up to the balcony afterwards, and you see 500 kids, average age 11... Um, after the first aria, they just erupt and shout "Bravo!" and the whole house starts laughing, <laughs> and the atmosphere is amazing. It, it doesn't fail; it never fails to fill me up and, and get me emotional. It's amazing. Tell us quickly because
0: I've digressed so so much. Tell us about Eno and what you're up to now, because I know that you cover quite a wide wide range, from making the costume department making gowns for local hospitals, through to driving.
1: Opera. Yeah, that's what we want to hear about, the driving. It,
3: it, yeah, it's, it's sort of big news. So three days a week, we're all on a Zoom together. And we were saying, what can we do? How can we reshape the art form for now? Um, if I sort of see one more Zoom with 50 musicians on it, I, I, you know, it just leaves me <laughs> slightly cold after the initial novelty. And so someone said, wouldn't it be brilliant if there was a kind of sealed container that we could all go to the theatre in? And someone else said, we do. It's called a car and so we <laughs> spoke to Alexandra Palace um, and the plan is to do a bunch of performances in September. Uh, it's probably going to be towards the end of September now, um, uh, where you dr- turn up in your car, um, probably for 300 cars, and have a cut-down version of La Boheme for an hour and a half and a cut-down version of the Magic Flute for an hour. Um, you pay a ticket, ticket price, we're just trying to work out what that is. It's either going to be 50 quid a car or 100 quid a car, which is cheaper than two people to the opera um and um you'll see big screens but also in front of you the plan is a proper performance on stage and not only that the thing i'm really excited about is having performers in cars next to you climb out of their car and perform in the car right next to you no way so it's a way yeah how does that work so, you know, there's a, there's a character in La Boheme, Musetta, who's a bit of a wild woman. Instead of her turning up just on stage in front of you, we're saying, wouldn't it be brilliant if she turned up in a Robin Reliant car parked next to yours? She climbed out. She saw the person who was in the Maserati. Let's call him Ed for now. And, um, uh, you know, saw the character that was wealthy and climbed over, you know, through the cars to the other character. So so we're really going for it. We've got some brilliant artistic brains, thinking about how we can make it fun and naughty. Um, I like a firework, so we might have some fireworks at the end. And, how will um, the
1: sound work, Stuart?
3: How, how... So, so that's it's a great question. That's why it's, it's really complicated. There's a bunch of ways it could work. One way it could work is you wind your window down, down a tiny bit and you hear it. That's difficult in an open-air environment because the sound gets dissipated. Another way is to have a little speaker about the size of your hand that then goes on the outside of your windscreen and turns your windscreen into a speaker.
1: Oh, wow. This this technology's
3: been there for ages. It's been there for 20, 20 years, 10 years, actually. So we could do that. Another option which um, is cheaper is to transmit it on a local radio frequency and we need to get permission from Ofcom to do that and it goes through your car radio. The difficulty with that is not everyone has a great radio. The brilliant thing is it's super cheap. And, you know, what we're aiming to do, whether we do it at Alexandra Palace or at some of the race courses we're speaking to or some of the British docks and ports we're speaking to because they're big empty areas... um, Uh, we we want to try and keep the price as low as possible while also having the spectacle that you get at opera. Um, I I don't just want it to be a screening like a cinema screening. I want it to be alive and around you and crazy.
1: The other thing, I suppose, it could
3: still kind of work if we're locked down, won't it? Exactly. I mean, you know, my parents are mid-70s. Dad has a bit of asthma. And they're really worried and they've been super careful. And I've been trying to say to them... This is not going to ever return to, to how it was. We're in a new normal for five years. And so don't be overly worried, but just change, change your habits and your pattern of behaviour. Now, I hate the fact that they feel they're going to be stuck in their house. So they can get in the car, windows up, perfectly safe. Someone can look through, look through the windscreen at their ticket. And they've, they can do it in a completely hermetically sealed way brilliant you know, others i think longer term people can just turn up have their windows down um, and and enjoy it for different reasons you know
0: it sounds brilliant you're gonna you're going to start a whole new sub-genre of what car to drive to the opera stuart murphy <laughs> we love you thank you for coming on our
3: podcast thank you so much stuart thank you thanks for having me it's really nice to talk to you
1: we're delighted to introduce you now to our next guest william Seacart. Now, you can read all about William Seacart in Country and Townhouses. I interviewed him 18 months ago, and there's a new conversation in isolation with him on the Country and Townhouse website. But just to tell you a bit about him, William Seacart is an entrepreneur, publisher and philanthropist, and is the chair of the Somerset House Trust, but his real passion is poetry.
0: Yes, William started the Forward Poetry Prize in 1992. He took poetry to the 2012 London Olympics. He's produced a best-selling anthology, Winning Words. Uh, he's also had the good sense to put me on the board of the Documentary Society, which he's on the board of. And uh, I remember from those meetings that William starts every meeting, well, the meetings he, can be, uh, he turns up to with a poem. He's missed a few. I'm, I'm assiduous in my attendance, obviously. Uh, but we're here to talk about poetry pharmacy,
4: another brilliant idea, From the Fertile Mind of William Seacart. It all happened by mistake, which has made it a delightful journey. Um, uh, uh, The um, organiser of the Port Elliot Festival that year was a friend of mine called Jenny Dyson. And she said to me, "I I want to invite you down to talk to Rosie Boycott about poetry, but you're always sending me poems to help me in difficult times. And she'd lost her father and her marriage had broken up. And she said to me, I'm setting you up in a tent after your talk and I'm going to tell everyone that that you'll be prepared to listen to their problems and do a poetry pharmacy. And guess what? I've designed and printed you a prescription pad. And um, I, I'm going to book people in to come and see you for 10 or 15 minutes of time and tell you their worries. So I said, OK, slightly nervously, thinking, blimey, that's quite a challenge. And she said, bring down to Cornwall photocopies of every poem you think might help someone and you can give them to them. So I thought I'd do this for an hour as a sort of gimmick. But five hours later, with a very full bladder, uh, I snuck out the back of the tent. And um, there was still a long queue of, of people waiting to see me. And what's more, the blackboard where you could book your appointment had been extended to the rest of the weekend. And that's how the poetry pharmacy began.
1: No. And how many of them have you done since, roughly, do you think?
4: Somewhere between one and two thousand. Um, no. I've slightly lost touch. Yes, um, it's all my fault. It's all Ed's fault, really, because when he was the Minister <laughs> of Arts, he, 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 he asked me to do a review of the future of the public library network. And not wanting to be a kind of government inspector turning up in a suit at every library, I offered to do a pharmacy in every library I visited for the library users and the library staff. And um, what I hadn't realized was that. Um, my, my kind of visits to libraries were organised just so that I got to saw my family on Mondays and Tuesdays. I'd, I'd sort of head off in my car on Sunday night and be back by Tuesday night or Wednesday morning and travel around the country. But I was booked into a library twice a day, lunchtime and evenings, to do a pharmacy. So I would end up in, in some premier inn, having listened to, say, 30 or 40 people's problems every night on my own. And I have to say, after, you know, 18 months, that became quite a challenge. Um, because as as anyone will tell you, for listening to problems, you you probably ought to be trained to do so and to be able to offload onto others.
0: I've forgotten you did the uh, library review uh, for me. It was an amazing piece of work, and um, oh, you probably visited more public libraries uh, than anyone in in England. But it's fantastic. But the other thing yeah. about what you did with the poetry pharmacy is you also heralded. Uh, what may be a change in the relationship between sort of arts and health, because uh, I think it's incredibly important that people can use the arts, particularly for issues like mental health or loneliness. And in fact, Matt Hancock, who's now the health secretary, obviously very prominent because of coronavirus now, but he went from the Department of Culture to the Department of Health and he did unlock at last the Department of Health to actually engage with the arts as a way of using the arts as therapy, if you like.
1: William, you must be feeling very, very vindicated because have, it is extraordinary how poetry has become such a solace for so many people in in isolation because you've you, you found a lot of people picking up poetry and copies of Poetry Pharmacy, haven't
4: you? Uh, yes, but also that, you know, I'm sure you've noticed this too, the airwaves, the, the, the social media is flooded with poetry, people reading poems, people sharing poems. And... It goes back to um, what I've been um, uh, trying to get across to the world, which is that I think that the canon of poetry has become a kind of secular liturgy. We don't commune in a religious way in the way we used to, but people are sharing this sense of soulful inspiration uh, and uh, the help, perhaps, that um, liturgies give people through poetry um, across social media. And um, it's really exciting. Poetry books have got have sold up got up about fifty percent in their sales in the last two or three years, and that's really thanks to social media spreading poetry around. That's wonderful. and um
1: I gather you've got some very, very high profile followers now, William.
4: Well, well, I, I've become a follower of someone rather high profile. Um, as I said to you before we started, I'm, I'm slightly Stone Age digitally, but um, I'm delighted that um, I've been approached by a wonderful actress called Amelia Clark, who for those listeners who don't know who she is, um, which will be few, she's the lead actress in Game of Thrones. And one of her great passions is poetry. Poor thing, she had not one, but two aneurysms, uh, brain aneurysms, and has really you know, had to battle to cope with... Um, uh, restoring her, uh, you know, her, her mental and her physical well-being as a result. And one of the things she turned to was poetry, and particularly the Poetry Pharmacy. And she's very kindly started a, a sort of lockdown initiative of sharing some of the poems and the prescriptions on her Instagram's site to her followers around the world. And, um, you know, I feel very honoured to have been chosen.
1: So, William, I gather that Idris Elba has uh, read one of these poems on her yes, Instagram
4: Charlotte, it's on the Instagram post. <laughs> That's
1: what I just said.
4: <laughs> I'm glad to hear, Charlotte, that you are firmly a 20th century like me when it comes to this. But yes, he has. And um, I think that um, m- quite a few more people will be, will be joining um, uh, Idris in doing that over the next um, uh, few weeks. So k- keep an eye on Amelia underscore Clark with an E and uh, you'll be able to follow it. And what did What poem did Idris read? Idris read a Kate Tempest poem. Oh, I love Kate Tempest. I love Kate Tempest. but Doesn't it go on for hours and hours then? No, it's a short Mm. one. All my poems are short (laughs) because, you know, the pharmacy, it, it has to be short. If you have a long poem, it's quite hard to... See, the key about poetry, the reason why people love the pharmacy, I think, is that... We all have these difficult feelings. You know, I don't believe that mental illness is, is, you know, in the gift of a few. I think we all have mental illness issues, just like we have physical of illness course. issues. And what's so remarkable is when you come across a poem which, which, which effectively frames how you're feeling, expressed considerably more elegantly than you can express yourself, you feel a sense of complicity. You feel understood. You're not alone. You're not mad. Well, in the current situation where we're all feeling alone and a bit mad, that's why a poem can be so helpful.
1: Well, William, do you think just to round off, you could come up with one for somebody who's completely isolated on their own, maybe not even with any outside space, and is feeling pretty miserable about lockdown. What what would be the poem you choose for that?
4: I'd like to choose a poem which is my prescription for anxiety, because we're living very much in an age of anxiety. It's something that we're all experiencing. And it's a wonderful poem by Wendell Berry, uh, who's an American poet, and it's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light, and for a time I rest in the grace of the world, and am free.
0: I really hope Amelia Clark lets you do an Instagram. Oh, that's a beautiful video. poem. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you both. So, we're delighted to have had our first guest. We really hope you enjoyed the interviews. And now, to wrap things up, I think we're going to talk a little bit about art. I wanted to mention a couple of things. First of all, I got my VIP invitation, so no one else may have received it, but I have received a VIP invitation to the Virtual Freeze Art Fest. Swanky, swanky. <laughs> and uh freeze as you know is the premier contemporary art fair started in london now in new york and la for really super cool people like me charlotte's never been yes i uh, have been been to freeze uh, helpfully (laughs) have you (laughs) how did you you must have paid to go surely
1: no i was invited thank you very much ed
0: oh i had heard it's got a bit down market but it's aimed at a specific demographic. It does, it, it does helpful things like list the top prints available for under $25,000, which is slightly out of my budget. But what is in budget uh, is the London original print fair normally takes place at the at the Royal Academy every year. But obviously, that's been cancelled. It's been savvy and it's gone online. They've done it really well. You can browse the individual dealers stalls It's lovely laid out. It's easy to navigate. If you're new to the world of prints, there's plenty of good curated information Uh, and also some insights from interesting collectors like Kath Kitson or Luke Edward Hall, as well as, of course, Royal Academicians themselves. The Royal Academy is famous for being owned and run by artists.
1: Yes. And hats off to the director, Helen Rosslyn for doing such a fantastic job. And make sure you log into the original print fair online details run on the country and townhouse website and not just to the royal academy's main website because um it's a bit muddling and you can get the impression the fair has been cancelled it very much has not it's going strong but online and it runs until may the 31st now, i
0: want to also talk about i want to talk about alcohol because the other thing that's been uh, brought to our attention is the fabulous initiative by the wonderful frick collection in new york so every friday at five o'clock which I assume is five o'clock New York time and 10 o'clock UK time. It hosts a cocktail with a curator on YouTube for happy hour. I think this is an absolutely brilliant idea. I think Tate and v all these guys should shamelessly steal this idea. It's brilliant. So the curator turns up, they give you a recipe for a fantastic cocktail, which is brilliant. And then you spend 10 minutes or so with your cocktail being told about a wonderful painting. They also give you, by the way, a recipe for a mocktail, so you can bring your precocious children to this amazing seminar. And they've looked at a Constable, a Van Dyke, a Rembrandt, a Turner, and also a Bellini, which I gather is also a cocktail. So that's great. It's a fantastic way of looking at their collection, isn't it, Charlotte?
1: It is a great way of looking at their collection, which is fabulous. And the Frick's one of my favourite, favourite museums as well. I've loved it ever since I went to live in New York when I was 17. And um, I'd like to thank two of our listeners um, for drawing that uh, cocktails with the curator to our attention, Lloyd Grossman and Melissa Natchbull. Never heard of them. Who are they? Um, I think you <laughs> have heard of uh, Lloyd Grossman, Ed. And sorry, but I couldn't resist a bit of a swank about um, a couple of our very illustrious listeners. And if you have any good ideas for us, please don't hesitate to email us on lockdownculture at uk. Brilliant. Um, Now,
0: we are just going to quickly wind up. I, I gave you a false flag by saying we're ending with art. We're actually going to end with Netflix, as we pretty much do every week. And we want to talk about some of their latest shows. We're all Netflix addicts now. And first of all, we're going to talk about the Swedish production of Caliphate.
1: Yes, I was absolutely on the edge of my seat. So uh, Caliphate is a series about a young woman who runs off to Raqqa with a jihadi and gets stranded there with her baby. She's absolutely desperate to get home, of course, and she manages, um, putting herself in great danger to get hold of a phone and get in touch with a young woman... Um, that she'd been at school with, or via her old school, who's now in the Swedish police, and the plot unfolds from there. And as we know from the bridge and the killing, the Scandinavians do anything dark and gripping absolutely brilliantly, so I can't recommend that enough if you're in the mood for something rather gruesome and gripping and scary. But if you're in another mood altogether for some sheer delicious joy and utter fluffy and beautifully written delight, please, please watch Call My Agent on Netflix.
0: That's the mood I'm in.
1: I've seen all three series and I can't wait for another one to come out. It's set in a theatrical talent agency in Paris. It's got a wonderful cast of characters and appearances by all sorts of real-life people like Isabella Rajani, Beatrice Dunn, Isabel Hooper. And they all sportingly play themselves as impossible and difficult and complicated prima donnas. It'll cheer you up no end. And besides, Paris just looks so, so gorgeous and reminds us that um, it'll, the world will still all be out there after lockdown. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Next week, we'll be bringing you more guests and special news from Hay-on-Wye Literary Festival, which has, of course, like everything else these days, had to move online. Anyway, if you
0: enjoyed this episode of Lockdown Culture, make sure you subscribe and leave a review on your podcast app. And for more ideas, visit countryandtownhouse.co.uk where you can also sign up to their daily Good News newsletter, bringing you positive stories from across the world to keep spirits high in these very uncertain times. And I want to say thanks to our guests, William Seacart and Stuart Murphy. And I also want to say goodbye.
1: And thank you too to the wonderful Diana Quick for that lovely message and goodbye from me.